And now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel, the end of chapter 21, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out any more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was a war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for your word that has been preserved to us through all these centuries. And we're thankful that we can come together now and hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us through your word. And so, Father, tune our hearts into the message of the Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and, and uh, articulate speech that I might communicate these things clearly. Father, fill us with a sense of worship and awe and praise and obedience for our Savior, who, like David, is a giant killer who destroys and puts down all those who would oppose him and your glory and everything that is true and life-giving. So, Father, cause us to praise this day as we journey through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, after the Exodus, after the children of Israel left Egypt, went to Mount Sinai, received God's law, proceeded then on to Canaan, they were ready to conquer the land. It was time to conquer the land, and so the Lord told Moses to send spies into the territories of the Canaanites to check them out. Moses picked one man from each tribe. Uh, there was Joshua, there was Caleb, and then ten other guys. Uh, and when the spies came back from Canaan 40 days later, the report uh, from the spies was demoralizing. It was disheartening. It was discouraging. They said, yes, of course, the land is just as God said it was. It's flowing with milk and honey. And look at the fruit here. We've got grapes and pomegranates and figs and all this stuff. But the tribes who live in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified and large. And the people, oh, you've got to see these people. The people who live in the land are very large. We're just little Hebrews. And the Canaanites are giants. And we feel like grasshoppers next to them. We can't beat them. That's a quote. They said, we feel like grasshoppers. Well, Caleb spoke up and said, look, that's nothing. We can lick them. But all the people started crying and they cried all night. And the next day they complained to Moses and Aaron. They said, only if we died in the land of Egypt or only if we died on the way here from Canaan. But now we're going to go die uh, by the sword. The people of this land are going to eat us up. They're going to devour us. They're going to have us for breakfast. And Joshua stood up and he said, look, you know, we didn't die in Egypt because God was protecting us. 
And we didn't die in the wilderness because God was protecting us. And so if we go into this land, the land that God is giving us, then God is going to still protect us. These giants are our bread. We're going to eat them. They're not going to devour us. We're going to eat them up. The Lord's protection has been lifted from them. They're ours. And the Lord is with us. Well, of course, the people all said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. No, 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 they didn't at all. They threatened to stone Joshua. That was their response to that inspiring speech. And that's when the glory of Yahweh appears and God curses the people to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Their children, the next generation, will get to enter the land of promise, but they won't. The 10 spies who discouraged Israel were struck with a plague. And so of that generation that left Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb get to enter the land. Now, 40 years later, when Caleb gets back to the land, boy, is he ready to square off with some giants. For 40 years, he's thought about this, that we, we stopped, we could have gone forward and we went backwards and we were afraid. Now, I want to show everybody, these giants are pretty, uh, pretty defeatable. We can, we can take care of these. And so um, they begin the conquest by killing a giant named Og, king of Bashan. We sang about him in Psalm 135 last week. Of Og, king of Bashan, had a bed that was 13 feet long, which sounds pretty good to me. My feet hang off of most beds. So if I had Og's bed, I'd be more comfortable at night. Um, but Og, king of Bashan, had a 13-foot bed. And they kill him. They killed Og, which is a great giant name, right? You can't come up with a better name than Og, right? And then when they get into the land and they finish... Uh, uh, it's time to mop up. Caleb says, I'm ready for my inheritance. And Joshua says, what do you want? And Caleb says, well, there's a mountain over there that's infested with giants. That's what I want. I want that giant infested mountain. And Canaan go, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Caleb goes up there and he clears out the mountain. He clears the, the mountain out of giants. And then when his daughter is grown, he says, hey guys, you want to marry my daughter? I got, I got a job for you. You got to kill some giants before you can marry my daughter because I want giant killing grandkids. You know, I'm a giant killer. My daughter's a giant killer, and I want some giant killing grandkids. And, of course, a man named Othniel steps up, and he does just that. And he wins the hand of Caleb's daughter, and he becomes, Othniel becomes the first judge in Israel in the book of Judges. The point of all this is that giants loom over the text of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. Canaan was a land of giants, and giants appear undefeatable. They're strong. Their weapons are massive. You can't beat them by your strength alone. And they're also a helpful reminder that you can't beat anyone or anything on your strength alone. If you beat a giant, you obviously had help. You obviously had help from the Lord. You can't brag on your prowess. You can't brag on your might if you've brought down a giant. So it isn't physically strong men necessarily that the Lord chooses to kill giants. It's faithful men who kill giants. It's brave men in the Lord who kill giants. Giants, therefore, stand between faithless, cowardly men and their goals. Uh, faithless, cowardly men don't want to face the giants. They don't want to do what they have to do. And so the problem never goes away. It only gets worse. Uh, add another layer to this. Giants are always threatening the bride. When the people listen to the reports of the spies, they say, we're going to die by the sword and our wives are going to be their victims. And, and this theme is also traced out uh, throughout uh, David's interaction with um, giants as well. But giants are, they threaten the bride. Giants are bullies. They're confident in their own strength and they need to be answered. So Caleb and Joshua were giant killers. And then when we get to the book of Samuel, 
we run into more giants. The conquest hasn't been completed fully. And, and when we uh, open the, uh, the, the story of King Saul, he's being bullied by a giant. We open the story of um, King David. King Saul is being bullied by a giant. Now, King Saul, as I've said many times, King Saul was Israel's giant. He was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. He was the man appointed to go be Israel's giant killer. But, of course, you know how the story goes. David steps in to do what Saul will not do. And in his own weakness and in, in the strength of the Lord, David kills the giant Goliath and cuts off his head. And in so doing, he wins the hearts of the men of Israel. And the, and the women too, doesn't he? When they all sing for him. So David is the new giant slayer. David finishes what Caleb started. The conquest of the land is not complete until all the giants are kicked out. And so when we see giant killing, we're still seeing this, this hangover of the conquest of the land and we're seeing this hangover of the Exodus. The giants are all Philistines. And Philistines, as we know, as we've traced out before in the scriptures, Philistines are Egyptians. So we're getting a final conquest of Egypt. Now in these last chapters of 2 Samuel, we get the short synopsis of David's giant killing. Remember I said last week, this last section of, of information in 2 Samuel is an appendix. This doesn't follow uh, chronologically after the events of Absalom's rebellion. We're getting this um, uh, finely crafted appendix uh, spanning David's whole career as king. Um, and so we get a collection of events now that happens over the course of David's reign. Uh, and, and, and so all these giant battles happened at different times, but the, uh, the, the record keeper put them all here so we could have them all in one, in one place. By the way, what, what are we talking about when we talk about giants? I need to stop and at least uh, point this out again. We talked about this extensively back when we talked about Goliath. Um, Goliath, the scriptures say, was over six cubits tall, which would make him about nine foot nine inches. And you think, oh my goodness, that's got to be some kind of a... They, they, they didn't know how to measure things back then. What? Nine foot nine inches? How, how in the world was there a human that tall? Well, the biggest uh, human in recent memory was a guy named Robert Wadlow in southern Illinois. He was 8'11". Um, uh, the, the, there have been uh, digs in France and archaeological sites that have found skeletons up to 11 feet tall. You can go research that yourself. It's not unheard of. We're talking about somebody who's about a foot and a half taller than an NBA player, basically. We're talking about uh, Goliath and some of these giants. So we don't know what kind of uh, genetic or pituitary abnormalities these Philistines had to grow this big, but the Bible says that they were, you know, six cubits tall, and so we believe it. So yeah, they were, they were big, big, big guys. But they weren't, you know, we're not thinking of uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, right? You know, we're not talking about, you know, somebody who's 60 feet tall or, or, or seven stories tall, right? I mean, we're talking about somebody who's abnormally large, uh, bigger than, than most men, and bigger than anybody we've seen in the world in a long time. But uh, we, we accept the scriptures, and we're talking about huge, huge guys, right? So we have four, four incidences here, four incidents in which we have outstanding acts of bravery on the part of David and his men where, where these are recorded. In the first episode, uh, the Philistines are at it again. David and his servants go down to fight against the Philistines. And David, we read, is exhausted in the heat of battle and he's in danger of death. So this must have happened somewhere in, in the last part of his reign. He's an older man. 
Um, he's willing to fight. He's ready to fight. He's learned his lesson from staying home uh, in the whole uh, awful episode with Bathsheba. He, d- he doesn't stay home anymore. Remember, even last week, was with uh, a couple weeks ago with Absalom, he's like, no, let me go, let me go. I'm ready to go fight. He's learned his lesson, but, but he doesn't have it in him anymore. And his men rally to protect him, just, they, just as they said when he wanted to go out to war with Absalom. Uh, his men say, no, you can't. He's willing to fight, but his trusted men say, you are the one we're fighting for. If you die, it will quench the lamp of Israel. That would be very discouraging to all of Israel if you were to go die. So let's use our heads here. We've got other men who can fight these wars and fight these battles. So you don't go out. So while David didn't need help from anyone but Yahweh in killing Goliath, here at the end of his life, he does need help with his giant killing. In fact, we need a whole army of giant killers to finish the work that, is, uh, that needs to be done. But that's the way it's supposed to work, right? You, know, you don't want to be the only person who does what you do best, right? That part of your job in God giving you certain gifts and skills is that you train other people to do those tasks, to, to do those things. And so David's done, a, David's done a good job. You want to train others so that you can multiply your gifts and get more done. This is, this is a key element of training children that I learn and have to learn the hard way over and over and over. When they're little and you're trying to get them to tie their shoes, it's just so much easier just to tie their shoes, right? It's just, t- just hurry up. Let me just tie your shoes. And they sit there and they fumble. He's like, no, oh, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. And, and you push off their development more and more. Uh, the longer you do things for them. When it's, no, you got to do it, and you got to fail a couple times, and you got to try it, and you got to do it. It's, it's much simpler for me to just go mow the grass than it is to ask a, a child to do it, because they're going to take twice as long, and it's not going to be as good as I would do it. And, and we have to accept that. It's, it's more hassle to train, and it's more hassle to, uh, to, to exercise the patience to have people who do what you do. Now, I'm picking up on a couple of simple uh, Uh, examples there. But David obviously has a trained company now of fighting men who are ready to take his place and he lets them because he's trained them and because he's put them through the paces. Now they're ready. Now they're ready to go and he lets them go do this. So the giant in the first episode is Ishi Benob. He's one of the sons of the giant. Now all of these are called sons of the giant. And and my first... uh, impulses to say, well, that must mean that they're all Goliath's sons. Sons of the giant must mean that they're um, sons of Goliath. But one of them is Goliath's brother. So, so what does that mean? Well, it, it must mean that they're descended from one of the original giants, or perhaps um, they are uh, dis- descended from Goliath's father or Gal- Goliath's grandfather, who was known as the giant. I, I, don't, I don't know uh, who the giant that it's referring to is, but it must have been an ancestor of Goliath. So the first one that we meet, Ishi Benob, has a bronze spear. It weighs 300 shekels. That's seven and a half pounds. That's, that's heavy for a spear, but it's only half as heavy as the one Goliath carried. Goliath's spear was 600 shekels. So We've got a guy now with a 300 shekel weight spear. Is, is the glory and strength of the Philistines fading? Are, are the giants fading in the land uh, because their, their prowess is less uh, daunting and their weapons are not as, as heavy? We don't know. David goes up against this man, and when David is exhausted in battle, his nephew, Abishai, who we've met a few times, that's Joab's brother, Abishai helps him, and Abishai gets credit for the kill. That's the first one we meet. We meet four. The second one 
is uh, in Gob. Another giant killing happens in Gob. We don't know where Gob is. It's perhaps a Canaanite city. The hero and deliverer this time comes from a town near Bethlehem. He is Sibekai the Hushathite, an inhabitant. That means he's from Husha, which is, which is a little town near Bethlehem. So, so this man is a fellow man of Judah, like, like David. He's a kinsman of David, and he kills Saph, who is another son of the giant. The, the third giant killing that we just read about this morning is at Gob again in another war with the Philistines, and a man named Elhanan, another Bethlehemite, kills the brother of Goliath. And then the fourth and final Philistine champion is an interesting guy. What, what makes him so interesting? Well, we know he can at least count to 24 because he has uh, six fingers on each hand and he's got six toes on each foot. So we know he can count that high. Obviously, he has polydactylism, um, which is a thing. You know that there are people who have six fingers and six toes. If some of you Philly fans might remember there was a major league pitcher, Antonio Alfonseca, who had six fingers and six toes on each, on each limb uh, several years ago. Um, so it, it happens. Uh, this is not unheard of for someone to have more than the usual number of fingers. So this giant with 24 digits, we read, was also born to the giant. He defies Israel, just like the first giant said, I can kill David. This one defies Israel. He says, bring it. And Jonathan, the son of David's older brother, kills him. Remember back with Goliath, David's older brothers were intimidated by Goliath. And they were upset with David for coming down to the battle. But here is the son of one of David's brothers, now emboldened by David, to engage the giant and to bring him down. So if we're counting it up in these stories, we have four giants. Now we know why David took five stones to go meet Goliath, right? You know, there are five giants in the land and David took down the first one and then his mighty men uh, later on in his reign take care of the other four. So for keeping track of this roll call of Philistine giants and the Hebrew men who killed them, we have two nephews of David, Abishai and Jonathan, and two men from the city of David, two men from around Bethlehem. What this, what this means is David has trained his nephews and he's trained his countrymen well. In spite of the fact that David's own sons were of no account, you know, they really didn't amount to much, uh, and, and we haven't really spent time with Solomon yet, but Amnon and Absalom really weren't worth anything. Despite that, David has raised up a generation of giant killers who will take his place when he's gone. Again, I, I always keep uh, pulling this back to, you know, what, what is my job as a father, as a teacher? It's another good lesson and a needed reminder for, for parents and for Christian educators here. We're not, we're not just raising wage earners, right? We're not just raising people who just kind of stay out of trouble, you know, take their garbage to the curb on Friday and keep their lawn green and, you know, just float along in life. You know, that's, that's your goal is just float along in life. That's not what we're raising. That's not what we're after. I hope you're not. I hope you're not thinking that way. We are to be raising giant slayers. That's what we're working on. We're raising giant killers who understand that we're at war. I was paid special 
special attention this morning to some of the psalms and hymns that we were singing this morning. How many psalms did we mention that uh, sing that mention war this morning? All of them. That's why we sing the psalms, is to remind us that we are engaged in a shooting war. We are in a conflict, and that means that our children are not simply being raised to get good at Netflix or, you know, uh, Xbox. That's not, that's not what we're working on. We're trying to raise young men and women who understand that we are at war and they understand a giant when they see one. They know, hey, yeah, that's bad. That's bad news. We're going to stay away from that. In fact, we're going to work to bring it down and replace it with something better. We want to raise children, young men and women who continue to perfect this fine art of giant killing, defending the bride and do a better job than we're doing. And that's what that's what we're after. David, despite his troubles with his own boys, still in some way had, had this influence on his nephews and had this influence on his countrymen where in fact there is this, this generation of giant killers to take his place. Now how is it though that when David was a boy, we couldn't find anybody to face the giant, but now we have plenty of giant killers stepping up to the task. Well, when the king is a giant killer, the people are empowered to be giant killers too. Uh, Jesus is our king and Jesus is our dragon slayer. Jesus uh, is our, our, our serpent crusher. Jesus is our giant killer. And so we as his royal cohort, we as, we as his, his royal army have the same power and the same authority and the same strength to defeat giants as well. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. How much power did it take to raise Jesus from the grave? Quite a bit, right? That's pretty impossible, right? Pretty unbelievable, pretty incredible, pretty amazing, right? That same power is in you. What is there? in your face, in your path, in your way that you are powerless against? The answer is nothing with God's Spirit within you. Uh, and one more lesson from these giants, they all have big mouths, right? They, they spout, they, they've got big hands, they've got extra fingers, they've got big, they got big heads, they've they got big uh, bodies, and with that they all have big mouths. They spout blasphemies. They spew contempt for God's people. They defy David. They threaten God's anointed. They all take after Goliath. They learned well after Goliath. Remember, Goliath's mouth was a fountain of profanity and haughtiness. And, and so they all get taken out one after the other. Remember that. Remember what happens to the one who will uh, spout blasphemy and, and spout profanity and haughtiness. When you take it upon yourself, to ridicule, slander, condemn God's people, you set a timer for your own destruction. Unless you repent, your days are numbered. You just, you just crank the egg timer and you say, okay, I'm gonna slander God's people, I'm gonna accuse, I'm gonna hold God's people in contempt. You set a timer. We saw last week when, with uh, Saul's house, who, remember Saul had attacked God's heritage. Saul had attacked God's uh, inheritance, his people. Saul made war on God's house. You make war on God's house, Saul's house found out. You make war on God. God makes war on your house. Why? Why, why is that? Again, can't you just be kind of neutral? No, it's because when you criticize and when you condemn and hold God's people in contempt, you are on the side of Satan. Satan is the adversary. Satan is the accuser. So don't be the church's accuser. That's the wrong side to be on. You'll get your head handed to you. It will happen. God has promised to defend his people against the likes of you. 
Are God's people frustrating sometime? You better believe it. Do we have errors? Absolutely. But also, we're his bride. Collectively, as the church, we're his bride. So be very careful about how you talk about his bride and his people. So we get all these great heroes um, who kill giants. Do you know what else great giant killers do besides fight monsters? Um, they sharpen their swords and they know where to stick them. They do that really well. But they also sing. They sing war songs. So right after this chunk of giant killing data, we get a psalm. Uh, and after this musical interlude, we're going to get right back to the call of mighty men. So if you have your Bible in front of you, you see uh, chapter 22 of, of 2 Samuel is essentially Psalm 18 that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have again. And the Holy Spirit wanted us to read Psalm 18 after reading all this information about David. And so then we have the last words of David in Psalm 23. And what happens right after we get the... Um, the last words of David. What's the very next verse? Verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. So we've got heroic feats of mighty men killing giants. We've got psalm, and then we've got more mighty deeds of mighty men, right back to a roll call of mighty men. The psalm is bookended on both sides by valor, bravery, and holy warfare. In fact, this whole section of 2 Samuel is very carefully arranged. Uh, last week, we saw there was a need for atonement. There was something wrong in the land. There was a famine. There was disaster. God was angry with the people because there was this old business that hadn't been dealt with. So we dealt with that, and we, we dispatched the house of Saul, and the influence of the house of Saul is no more in Israel. Move one layer in, and we just read about the mighty men and their uh, de defeat over the giants. And now we've dealt with the Philistines. The Philistines don't have any giants anymore. They're dealt with. They're put to rest. And now in the middle, we have this long section of, of psalmody. We have this section of, of music, this, this singing right here. And guess what we get on the other side? It's, it's just like uh, stair steps or like, uh, like a sandwich where each side matches the one next to it. So coming out of this, what do we have? We have more mighty men, just like we had mighty men on this side, more mighty men. And then the last section of this appendix uh, matches the first. Remember, we had a crisis. We needed atonement. Here at the end, we're going to have another crisis. David foolishly numbers the army. He foolishly numbers God's people. And God sends uh, a, a penalty for that. There's judgment. And then it ends with atonement, where uh, David performs a sacrifice on the land, which uh, is going to be the, the base, uh, the, the property where the temple is later going to be built. So this whole section is very carefully arranged. It's very artistically arranged, these last few chapters of 2 Samuel. And this whole package gives us uh, the, the defense of, of uh, uh, Solomon's reign. This now everything is tied up and everything's handed over to Solomon. Saul's taken care of. The Philistines are taken care of. We have mighty men in the land. And now we have the property on which the temple is going to be built. All the Canaanites, all of Saul and the Philistines and everything's out of the picture. And now we're ready for Solomon. Now, so... Um, not only, not only is this carefully arranged, but this fact that there's the singing right in the middle is pretty consistent with the rest of the scrolls of 1st and 2nd Samuel. 1st Samuel began, remember, with Hannah's song. Hannah started the book with singing. Then later, David sings for Saul. The people sing for David. David mourns for Saul 
and Jonathan in a song right in the middle of First and Second Samuel. And then David establishes singing and instrumental worship at the tabernacle. David sings and dances his way into Jerusalem with the ark. Music permeates this book. And now as we get to the end of this book, we have a song that answers the first song of Hannah. So we had Hannah's song, David's song for Saul and Jonathan. And now at the end, we have this psalm. And, and each of these are peaks that are filled in in between with all kinds of singing. Well, there's all kind, there are all kinds of neat connections between this psalm of David and Hannah's song. Remember, Hannah's song praised the Lord that the, bow, the, the bows of the mighty are broken and those who stumble are girded with strength. Uh, Hannah saying, he, he uh, raises the poor up from the dust. The adversaries of Yahweh are broken in pieces. Well, all the things that Hannah prayed for in her song, all of those things that she mentioned have happened over the course of the last 140 years or so since Hannah sang that uh, up to David's time. And so now here at the end of the book of Samuel, David picks up on several of Hannah's themes. She said, her horn is exalted. What in the, we, we read that phrase and sometimes we sing it. What does that mean? My horn is exalted. Well, it could mean many things. Um, horns, like the antlers of a deer, the horns of a great ox, horns are their glory. Anything that extrudes out or spans out like your hair is your glory. A woman's hair is her glory, right? This is, uh, this is glory. And so the horns of an animal are its glory. And not only that, but the horns of an animal are also used as vessels for oil. Uh, they, they put oil in the horn of an animal and you could cork it and stop it up and anoint with oil out of the horn. And also they used horns for musical instruments. You blow in one end and it makes an interesting sound out the other end. So all of these things have to do with glory and anointing and worship. And so if your horn is exalted, uh, it may be that you're getting anointed. It may be that you're blowing it in worship. It may have a reference to the glory that surrounds you uh, as, uh, as the antlers of a deer or the horns of an ox. Um, so, so Hannah refers to this fact that her horn is exalted and David calls Yahweh the horn of his salvation. That God has the, the horn of anointing oil that he pours on me and what he pours on me is salvation. Hannah says, there's no rock like our God. She says that one time. David says that three times. David says, God is my rock three times. In both songs, the anointed one is lifted up and glorified. In both songs, both Hannah's song and this psalm here at the end, uh, uh, the Lord is praised for his deliverance, his intervention on behalf of his people. So David is taking themes from Hannah's song and he's elaborating on her work. He's, he's building on it. Through Hannah's son Samuel, the old order of the, of the uh, old pre-kingdom world, that whole world is being put to death. Eli, Saul, all of their mess, all of that's been put to death. And with David, a kingdom has been resurrected. So Hannah, from her perspective, is looking forward to the coming of Lord, the Lord's anointed, who will finally deliver Israel from the Philistines when Hannah lives uh, uh, Israel's under the weight, they're under the boot of the Philistines. And so she's praying, Lord, deliver us. And now with David, we got the Lord's anointed who liberated us from the Philistines. And now at the end, David looks back and, and he rejoices in what God has done and how Hannah's hope has been fulfilled. Now we have Psalm 18 in the text of 2 Samuel. 
which we're familiar with, which is one of the longer psalms. And I promise, and I've said this before, but I really promise at this time, I'm going to read because one of my goals in studying these books is that we read everything, we read every word, we read them in context, we don't skip anything. So I'm going to read, and I'm only going to stop a couple times to make just a few things, uh, uh, statements, and point out a couple things to you. But we're going to get to the end of uh, chapter 22, and we're going to do it rather quickly now. So here... And remember all these things I said about Hannah's song and see if you can make any connections there. But, but let's pick up with chapter 22. Then David spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day when Yahweh had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength and whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. This starts in these rapid fire bursts of praise. A small handful of words won't express his exuberance. So he piles it all up. And this outburst makes sense when you hear about the, the, the calamity that he's been delivered from. Verse five, when the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. God heard my cry. This is my confidence that when I cry out to him, he hears me. He doesn't ignore me. It reminds us of what Jonathan, um, what David said to Jonathan one time. David said, there is just one step between me and death. And that, and that gives a window of the desperation he faced. These are intense extremes of, 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 of tribulation that, that he's going through when he writes this. Verse 8. Then so I cried out to the Lord, and how does the Lord respond? What does God do? I, I cry out, he, my cry enters his ears, verse 8, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. Yahweh thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils." Uh, you remember that old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer. David didn't write any sweet hours of prayer. He didn't, he didn't write any kind of, you know, really maudlin stuff, right? That would rarely be used to describe David's prayers. It's all thunder and earthquakes. You remember the earthquake in 1 Samuel, right? Remember reading about that? No, me neither. When was there an earthquake? When were the foundations of the earth uncovered? When were these floods and catastrophic weather? We don't, uh, the, 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 I don't read and don't remember any of that, but the events that we've been studying, the fighting with the Philistines, the, David's trouble with Saul, David's conquest of Jerusalem, his deliverance out of one scrape after another, these are earth-shattering events. Maybe not everyone on earth understood the importance, but from heaven's perspective, everything was shaken when David cried out to God for him to deliver him. And do you not believe 
that when we repeat the Holy Spirit's words in the Psalms, when we sing the Psalms to each other and to God, when we come into his holy throne room and sing to him the words that the Holy Spirit gave us, do you not think that he will also shake the world today? Do you not also think that he will send fire from heaven to vanquish his enemies and our enemies? Do you not think that he will do that? Do I, I'm going to talk about literal fire from heaven. No, I'm not even sure he said literal fire from heaven when he dealt with Saul. What I'm talking about, God shook things up and God made things so that his people would be protected and delivered. And God, God vindicated his king, David. And so child of God, when you pray, the same thing happens. Your cry enters his ears and the earth shakes. Do you want the earth to shake in China right now where the, where the uh, government is persecuting God's people, your brothers and sisters? Do you want the earth to shake? Then we got to sing the Psalms. We got to sing the Psalms so that God hears them. Our cries enter his ears and he shakes the earth. Do you want abortion to be done for in this land? Do you want it to be over? You want to end this mess? We got to sing the Psalms and we got to, we got to thunder heaven with our Psalms so that God shakes the earth with his mighty power. That's what happens and that's how, it, that's how it works. And David knew this, of course. Verse 17, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Yahweh rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me for I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, Yahweh has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his eyes." What is this? Is David denying justification by faith? Is this works righteousness that he's talking about here? Uh, 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 according to my righteousness, he's rewarded me according to the cleanness of my hands. Has David reached some level of perfection where now he's earning his own salvation somehow? No, 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 no. That's not it at all. Those who faithfully follow the Lord, those who love his word and obey it, are those who can expect his blessing. That's what he's saying. Those who despise his lordship can't expect his rescue and his deliverance. So, it doesn't matter if David wrote this before or after Bathsheba, before or after his mess with Amnon and Absalom, after his failures with his sons. He's a covenant keeper. And he can say this because he's faithful to the covenant in this, that after he sins, he deals with his sins as a covenant keeper and not as a covenant breaker. That's the question. I know you're going to sin. I'm going to sin. My question is, are you going to deal with it as a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper? And David is a covenant keeper. He confesses his sins. He repents. And so as a member of the covenant now, he boldly proclaims that the promises of God are just and true and sure. And God's faithfulness to his promises is what has sustained David and what has established him. This is what he rejoices in. Not that he's earned his own salvation, but that God has, has, has reckoned him righteous because of God's own righteousness. Pick up in verse 26. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. Here's God's wisdom in dealing with different kinds of people. I'd love to spend a whole lot of time on this and, and reflect on this some more. 
um, that you know, he shows himself merciful with the merciful, blameless with the blameless, but with the devious, he shows himself shrewd. Think about that. See, God is always just, he's always good, but he doesn't always deal with everybody the same way. And we can never say, well, look at how he dealt with that and look at how he did this over here. We can never say, oh, that's not fair because God deals with everybody in a unique way. God's Holy Spirit wrestles with each human in a unique way. And uh, that deserves more of our thought and more of our reflection. But I'm going to read now through the end of this chapter. And pay close attention. It's hard, I know, sometimes when you're just listening to reading, but really focus and uh, don't take your mind off of God's Word as I, as I finish this chapter. For you are my lamp, O Yahweh. Yahweh shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on high places. He teaches my hand to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked. But there was none to save, even to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. Yahweh lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. See, in case you're thinking this whole time that we've been reading about the great mighty king David, David is very careful to point this out at the end and let us know the whole time we've been reading about the great and mighty king Yahweh. This whole time, that's who we've been reading about. The kingdom is established not by human might or strength. The kingdom is established by God's power alone. By his power, nations rise and fall. So in this psalm, David gives thanks that God has delivered to him this peaceful kingdom. God has given him victory over the nations, just as God promised. This is all preparation for Solomon to come be the Prince of Peace. And it forecasts the kind of kingdom that Messiah eventually will have. The fulfillment of the promise starts here, though. It starts with David, this psalm-singing, giant-killing king. This, this David, who as we've studied him, he has frustrated us. He has made us scratch our heads. But in the end, he was still God's beloved man. And I think that's about the best that can be said of any of us when we stand before God at the judgment. That boy, 
you were frustrating. You made me scratch my head. I can't, I can't believe you did the things you did, but you are God's man. You are God's woman. Why? Well, for David, it was because he was faithful to the covenant. He was faithful to God despite his many failures, but despite all of the things that he did uh, that were absolutely disgusting and wrong, he keeps coming back to his knees. And that's what God expects of all of us. This is the man in whom God delights, the man who will submit himself to God and his law. Never, ever be so prideful that you cannot confess your sins, that you cannot own your own failures and own your shortcomings and bring those before God, accepting God's forgiveness. That is the one in whom God delights. That is the man who God saves. That is the woman that God redeems. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you uh, again for this record of your servant, David. And we praise you that as we're getting close to wrapping it up, we uh, are turning back to uh, heroism and, and uh, your mighty acts through these men who you called to serve you. And we pray that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit to not only uh, look for the giants of our day and to know that they can be defeated, but also to raise our children to be giant slayers and dragon killers, to crush the head of the serpent in their generation. We can't do this on our own. This is your kingdom. These are your children. This is your victory. And so we give it all to you. We ask you to use us uh, in your hand to accomplish your ends. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.